We are in the midst of a serious financial crisis, and the federal government is responding with decisive action. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. The economy is humming now. Unemployment is at half-century low of 3.6%. The gross domestic product is at 3.2%. Consumer confidence is at a 15-year high. Happy days are here again, right? No. They're here, but they're here until they're not here. The presidency is a job of emergencies, managing them and preparing for them. The global markets move so fast now, economic emergencies can sneak up as fast as a devastating terrorist attack. Will a president be ready? Will the political system be ready? These are our questions today. So even in a time of a humming economy, if you're thinking about the presidency, you always have to think about when it isn't. Speaking of that, in the fall of 2007, the American economy came close to total collapse. It was a surprise to most experts. Talking to Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin recently, he served in the Clinton administration, he said a lot of people talked about slack in the system, but no one talked about the greatest collapse in the economy since the Great Depression. The panic that followed in 2007 echoes throughout our economy today. Still, the lessons are fading because the system wants us to forget. Political majorities survive by boosting economic performance. Political majorities don't stay in power by telling everybody that the ceiling is about to fall. And both parties depend on donations from the employees of financial institutions that like to operate freely, and so they donate to politicians, and the the regulations that constrain them tend to loosen over time as people forget about the crises. Oh, and consumers, they like to feel good by welcoming their friends into their plush new homes or watching the big game on their vast television screen or casually accepting compliments on their swank new SUV. There are incentives in American life to forget the pain of the last economic crisis. And that's dangerous, as former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, one of the firefighters during the Great Recession, told NPR's Marketplace. The enemy is forgetting that uh, as time passes and the memory of this gets further in the rearview mirror, you know, then you'll start hearing from Congress and from the banks, you know, well, this is constrained lending. We should really start undoing all of these things as soon as possible. Which we're hearing today. A little bit. So we seek to give rough treatment to that enemy ourselves today. But first, a word from our sponsor. Our whistle stop today is March 12, 2008. President George W. Bush was going over the text of a speech addressing the financial crisis in the housing market. His Treasury Secretary, Henry Hank Paulson, noticed that the text included language ruling out any bailouts of investment banks. Don't say that, Paulson warned the president. President Bush was puzzled. We're not going to do a bailout, are we? Paulson said he wasn't predicting a bailout at the moment, but given the unpredictability of things, he couldn't rule one out. Mr. President, the fact is the whole system is so fragile, we don't know what we might have to do if a financial institution is about to go down. It was a prudent warning. By the fall of 2008, the White House and Congress had voted to bail out several of those financial firms. The Great Recession of 2007 to 2009 shook the entire foundation of the American economic system. 
It will be our entry point here today to look at the role of the presidency and the economy in the context of that crisis. When we think about the expansion of the presidency, the New Deal and the Second World War come to mind. FDR enlarged the office to take on the gargantuan challenges at home and abroad. We also, though, have had modern expansions of the presidency. So, just as 9-11 initiated a new era of national security challenges that increased the numbers of threats a president must manage each day, so too the Great Recession increased the to-do list on the financial side. It highlighted that the economy operates at a more complex and faster speed than in the presidencies that have come before. There are two ways to think about the presidency and the economy. First is stewardship, and the second is crisis management. The former requires putting policies in place that create prosperity, head off disaster. The latter, the crisis part of the job, requires knowing how to respond when disaster hits. The two are related, as we'll see. The ongoing economic conditions in America, income inequality, for example, shape what's possible in terms of a response. And in this case, that shaped what was available and, and how much political pressure there was in responding to the Great Recession. In campaigns, we talk about a candidate's potential for economic stewardship. Will there be more equality of outcomes? Will wages rise? What's productivity going to do? How's trade going to work out? But we don't really talk about the crisis role a president plays. In the stewardship role, a president persuades the public and Congress. In emergencies, the president is a solitary actor, not the only actor, but a president has more influence. In an emergency, bad decisions can be catastrophic. And yet we don't talk about how catastrophic they might be when we talk about the economy during campaigns. This is not true, for example, of how we select other people for jobs. For example, we don't train pilots to know what to do only when the plane is on autopilot. While we're in the crisis aisle of the supermarket, we should note that there is also a special display section for the role played by presidential advisors. When I talked about presidential transitions recently with former Treasury Secretary Rubin, he didn't share my interest in the, in the question of presidential transitions. Crazy, I know. Essentially, though, he said basically presidential transitions aren't that important. It's people writing a lot of reports. But he quickly followed up by saying the thing to focus on is presidential staffing. If a president surrounds himself with people who have skill and expertise, both practical and political, then in a crisis, he has people he can listen to. And it allows a president to respond quickly to a complicated and fast-moving crisis in a way, particularly those for which he has no innate qualities to judge. So when we think about candidates in elections, we need to not only think about the president, but who the president will hire. The job requirements for emergency economic management have changed as the economy has grown more complex and faster. If a president names as his top economic advisor a political person whose job is to lie about economic numbers on television or play semantic games, but who can't identify his ass from his elbow, even with corrective lenses, the president is going to get bad advice at just the time he needs good advice. Or the president won't be pushed off of some absurd notion he holds, because the person he's hired to be his economic guru won't have standing on the issue at hand. President can make bad decisions because they put politics over policy, but they can also build a system that ensures bad outcomes in a crisis if they surround themselves with the wrong people. Also, in an interconnected economy, a misunderstanding of the way the economy works 
or a president who is impervious to new and expert information can lead to collapse. Theoretical issues in a crisis become catastrophic real issues. So, for example, when President Trump says the Chinese are paying tariffs, this is incorrect. Maybe he knows it's incorrect, which means he's just lying to fool people. That is obviously not good. But what if he really thought this were the case and couldn't be persuaded otherwise? Locking yourself into a misunderstanding like that could lead to a devastating mistake in response to an economic emergency for a president. It's the economic equivalent of launching missiles on Damascus, Maryland, when you mean to attack Damascus, Syria. All right, that's a lot of assertions, so let's see if we can prove any of them. And since we're writing and thinking in this whistle stop on the, at the beginning of an election season, we have to always keep in mind that we are hiring someone to do a job that has specific requirements. We're not just hiring someone who can simply make people cheer at a rally. In 2008, the financial system seemed pretty stable. 2005 was the first year without a bank failure since the Depression. There were challenges, of course, rising income inequality, stagnant wages, slow productivity growth, but the view was that the economy was largely healthy and could certainly handle any shocks that might be thrown at it. Some wise economists even flirted with the idea that risk, as we used to understand it in the economic terms, had been banished because derivatives and other fancy financial instruments made the, the market more agile and responsive to changes. At this point, we need to quote Nobel laureate Kenneth Arrow, the economist who uh, made a thing of studying certainty uh, and uncertainty, basically argued that emergencies are coming at just the moment think people think that there will be no more emergencies. Vast ills, he said, have always followed a belief in certainty. Quoting him further, it is my view that most individuals underestimate the uncertainty of the world. This is almost as true of econ economists and other specialists as it is of the lay public. To me, our knowledge of the way things work in society or in nature comes trailing clouds of vagueness. And one of my favorite quotes is, is when he was in, in World War II, he was a weather forecaster. And he um, noticed, this was his first experience with the, the um, failure of certainty, he noticed that constantly they were getting their long-range weather forecasts wrong. And uh, he pointed this out and as an illustration of how people refuse to be um, informed about the uh, actual vagueness of their certainty. This was reported to the commanding generals that their weather forecasts were no good. And the reply uh, to this warning came back and said it was, the commanding general is well aware that the forecasts are no good. However, he needs them for planning purposes. So, while the economy seemed good and people weren't listening to Nobel laureate Kenneth Arrow and his fears that when things look good you should be the most concerned, there were two big dangers that were building underneath that good economy. One was spe specific and one was general. The more general, I've already talked about, income inequality, distrust of institutions, partisanship, the rise of complexity in financial transactions. But the specific problem was that there was a massive credit boom in America. Families and financial institutions were borrowing a great deal more than they could afford. Homeowners believed their houses were a constantly appreciating asset. So what if they had a huge mortgage on their home? They could always sell the house with its eight bedrooms and mansard roof if they had to make back enough to pay off their loan. Financial institutions looking for a way to make money found increasingly exciting financial instruments that took advantage of this appetite for housing. And there was a key innovation to these new instruments. They pooled mortgages, which pooled risk. So if a bank loans to Joe and Joe doesn't pay, the bank is stuck with the asset 
and, and Joe hasn't paid him back. But if thousands of Joes are pulled together and one Joe doesn't pay, that doesn't hurt the owner of the instrument that has spread those thousands of mortgages across one financial instrument. These instruments sold so well, the market for them exploded. Financial institutions kept marketing new kinds of instruments, but of course there are only a limited number of homeowners, So, but they still wanted to sell those instruments. So they started making more and more risky underlying loans. So the loan makers were making super crappy loans to people with awful credit, but it didn't matter because they thought they had spread this risk out across these instruments so that no one would really get hurt. They thought risk had been banished. We go back to our Nobel laureate, Kenneth Arrow. Vast ills have followed a belief in certainty. Risk, it turns out, had not been banished. So when housing prices declined, the panic started. What could have been a panic in just the housing market turned into a broader financial panic because of those instruments, which had hooked the entire economy and the health of financial institutions to the volatility of the housing market. This created a stampede. Everybody was dumping mortgage-backed securities as fast as they could. Cash-desperate investors sold at any price. Investors who bought securities on credit were asked to put up more cash, but they didn't have the cash because of that super over-leveraged posture they were, they were in. So this led to job losses, which led to not people not paying their mortgages and foreclosures on homes, and that led to a greater spiral in the housing market. It built on itself into one giant doom loop. This doom loop hit the major financial institutions in America particularly hard. In the period running up to the crash of, seven, of 07 to 09, major financial institutions, because of lax regulations and the opacity of some of these transactions that were going on, had grown into these behemoth, behemoths that were considered, among many, as too big to fail. So here are some figures. In the 30 years before the crisis, the amount of debt held by the financial sec sector grew from $3 trillion to more than $36 trillion, more than doubling as a share of gross domestic product. By 2005, the country's 10 largest commercial banks held 55% of the nation's assets, more than twice the concentration of a decade and a half earlier. The profits from the financial sector corporations in 2006 represented 27% of all corporate profits in, in the United States. That was nearly double the concentration in 1980. So when the panic happened and the crash started in one month in September in 2008, the following things happened. The government nationalized the mortgage giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The feds hadn't intervened, hadn't intervened in the financial markets like that since the Depression. In this period, Lehman Brothers, the venerable investment bank, collapsed, the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. Merrill Lynch collapsed and was barely resuscitated by Bank of America. The government had to jump in and rescue AIG, the insurance giant, with an $85 billion infusion. And we're not done yet. Washington Mutual and Wachovia banks failed, the two largest failures of federally insured banks in U.S. history. I found this description of panic and, uh, and the, the role that panic and the role confidence plays in financial markets helpful. It's from a book called Firefighting. Uh, that was written by Hank Paulson, Ben Bernanke, and Tim Geithner, um, essentially the three firefighters involved in trying to keep this fire from spreading throughout the entire U.S. economy, not just financial institutions, but all businesses that employed people. Because the, what happens when you have a panic like this is that the credit markets um, seize up. No one lends any money anymore, uh, and companies can't operate 
And this is this. So not only are people losing jobs, not only can't they pay for their houses, not only have their savings entirely disappeared because the financial institutions are falling apart and these mortgage backed securities are now worthless, but it catches on throughout the economy. Paulson was the Secretary of Treasury, Bernanke at the Fed, Geithner was at the New York Federal Reserve. He would later go on to be Treasury Secretary under Obama. Here's from the book. Financial institutions, unlike other businesses, whose success depends primarily on the cost and quality of their goods and services, are dependent on confidence. That's why the word that's where the word credit comes from. It's from the Latin word for belief. It's why we say we can bank on things we know to be true, why some financial institutions are called trusts. It's why traditional bank architecture relied so heavily on imposing granite facades and pillars to project an aura of stability and permanence in front of the fragility of finance. No financial institution can function without confidence, and confidence is evanescent. It can go at any time, for rational or irrational reasons. When it goes, it usually goes quickly, and it's hard to get back. This gives you a sense of, A, what happened in the catastrophe of 2007 to 2009, but also what could happen in the future. Confidence can zoom out of the room, and then it's panic stations. So we should keep this quick-acting aspect in mind because it reminds us that the presidency and the kinds of problems the president faces can form very quickly. And here's just one of the ways that in a doomed situation, policymakers, presidents, secretaries of treasury are restrained because of this idea of confidence. And here I'm quoting from Treasury Secretary Rubin in his book, In an Uncertain World. He's talking here about the peso crisis in the mid-90s, which essentially was an effort to rescue the U.S. economy from the collapse of the neighboring Mexican economy. Here's Rubin. In describing what was happening, I found myself trapped in a kind of catch-22. On the one hand, I needed to underscore the dangers in order to motivate reluctant legislators and the public to support our rescue package. On the other hand, frank talk about what might happen could provoke the very reaction we most wanted to avoid, that reaction being a panic. So because of the, the centrality of confidence, the people who can instill confidence can't necessarily get emergency measures in in place because they don't want to undermine confidence in trying to get those emergency measures passed by Congress or uh, agreed to by the public. All right, let's bring the president on stage. The first task for a president in this kind of panic is to try to break that doom loop, that crisis cycle. And so there's a famous speech, of course, uh, that typifies this role for the president. So first of all, Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. And I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. This, of course, was FDR speaking to the nation after he took office as he built support for his package of economic reforms. At this point, we begin our conversation about the president's persuasive power, you have to quote Richard Neustadt when you're talking about presidencies the way you have to quote Alexis de Tocqueville when you're talking about democracy. 
He's a huge force in the field. He wrote in, uh, was an advisor to Kennedy, and he wrote his famous line, perhaps, is that the power of the presidency is the power to persuade. And this is a, a very hotly debated concept in presidential studies because this, of course, isn't true. Presidents uh, can talk all they want and then they have and, and have no actual effect on the outcome of policy. On the other hand, we certainly see with President Trump his ability to persuade, to influence people, change the news cycle, whipsaw everybody's attention. Uh, so he obviously has tremendous communicative power, even though he hasn't actually persuaded uh, many people in, in terms of actual policy. So we should also say that two of the greatest communicators, two of the greatest presidents, Lincoln and FDR, said they could never go further than the public would let them. Still, at the height of maximum power, a president can convince people to do something that is not an immediate emergency right in front of them. So this would we'd think of this in terms of the passage of Medicare, Social Security, civil rights. They would all be in this category. But in the modern presidency, the power to persuade is highly diminished. Why has the persuasive power been diminished? Well, largely it's because of partisanship. And here we turn to the work of political scientist George Edwards of Texas A&M. And he's long argued that when a president focuses his, his or her, but only his so far, attention on something, the people it actually moves and persuades are not the people in the middle who needed to hear a carefully reasoned argument. And it's not necessarily even the president's supporters. The people it ends up persuading are the president's opponents who become energized against a measure, a measure because that measure has now become associated with the president they dislike. So Edwards found that during the Reagan years, when partisanship wasn't anything close to what we have today, the policies that Reagan supported, expanding defense spending, actually went down in public esteem, even though Reagan was the great communicator. Spending on domestic programs that Reagan did not necessarily support actually went up. So what this means is the presidential communication should be thought of the way FDR and Lincoln thought of it. They are shapers of public movements. They can take public energy and direct it, but unless the public is ready to go in a particular direction, a president, no matter how good a speech he gives, is not going to make the public turn their opinion at right angles. So going back to Edwards, his when he wrote his original work on this and looking at Ronald Reagan, he found that, that actually uh, Ronald Reagan's role as the great communicator came at a time when the conservative attitudes in America were at their peak and liberal attitudes were in their plateau in the late 1970s, which made Reagan a beneficiary of these trends rather than the initiator of those trends. Although we should add a caveat that Reagan is a bit of a special case because while his presidency should be thought of in one case, his speeches for conservative ideas going back into the 60s uh, long before he was president, actually did build that national support that then helped him as president. But still, the point remains that presidents surf public opinion much more than direct it, even though the view of presidents is that if they give a good speech, they can change the nature of things. And a good example for to, to describe this is when George W. Bush tried as president before the economic catastrophe that is the subject of our whistle stop today, he tried very hard to sell in 2005 a plan for modernizing Social Security. He'd just been reelected as president, and he said he wanted to use his political capital. So he wrote about this in his book, Decision Points. And as he was trying to explain to his leaders of his own party in Congress about his grand plan for modernizing Social Security, one of them said, Mr. President, this is not a popular issue. Taking on Social Security will cost us seats. 
No, Bush shot back. Failing to tackle the issue will cost us seats. It was clear, he writes, that the members of Congress were thinking about the two-year election cycle, while Bush says he was thinking about the responsibility of a president to lead on issues affecting the long-term prospects of the country. I reminded them, Bush writes, that I had campaigned on this issue twice, and the problem was only going to get worse. By solving it, we would do the country a great service, and ultimately, good policy makes for good politics. The members of Congress were not convinced. If you lead, they told the president, we'll be behind you, but we'll be way behind you. And they turned out, of course, to be right. The president's idea that taking on huge problems that people aren't thinking about immediately uh, does not necessarily work out in practice, though it sounds good in a speech. President Bush gave speech after speech on his modernization of Social Security plans, 60 cities in 60 days, and the attempt totally failed. But it wasn't just Bush. Bill Clinton, in his first two years in office, was traveling nonstop in support of his agenda. And we all remember that not only did this not improve public views of the president's health care plan and his other early uh, policy initiatives as president, the 1994 election was a historic ending of 40 years of Democratic rule in the House and also big losses for Democrats in the Senate. President Bush, talking about his effort to push Social Security, said the failure of the Social Security reforms shows the limits of presidential power. If Congress is determined not to act, there is only so much a president can do. With partisanship so much more virulent today than ever before in the modern presidency, it is understandably harder for modern presidents to make the case for economic changes even in the course of an emergency. Well, George W. Bush had even greater problems. The Iraq war had gone terribly badly, and his approval rating was bouncing around in the 30s, setting, uh, flirting with historic lows for a president in the modern era. There was also an election just months away, and the Democrats were running against President Bush, and essentially so was John McCain, the Republican. Everyone was in a dangerously partisan state of mind at just the time the crisis had happened, and emergency, quick emergency action was needed. By the way, Bush was also a terrible messenger. He had promoted trust in the free market throughout his presidency. The free market was now belching. How could people have confidence in the president's solutions at the very moment that his free market was being proved wrong? On the conservative side, Bush wasn't sufficiently conservative, so his hinting at bailouts or whatever needed, was needed to fix the economic problems they were all facing to conservatives, Bush wasn't a sufficient conservative, so they weren't listening to him either. Bush's initial responses fell into the trap that Robert Rubin talked about earlier. He, so he spoke twice in the four days after the behemoth Lehman Brothers buckled. And his language was, based, was soft and vague. He talked about adjustments and disruptions and the quote-unquote situation. He was anxious not to fuel the panic, just as Rubin had said, but... This was the president who had had the famous bullhorn moment after 9-11, and so when he wasn't sending signals of command, it wasn't giving anybody any hope that whatever solution they were cooking up in the back room was going to solve this economic panic that people were hearing was not only going to devastate financial institutions, but it was going to spread throughout the U.S. economy. On the other hand, Bush may have, and there is some evidence that he did have, 
knowledge about what George Edwards writes about, which is the more that he, George Bush, a super unpopular president at the time, was associated with the program, the less chance it may actually have had to get through Congress. On September 18th, 2008, Secretary of the Treasury Paulson and Fed Chairman Bernanke arrive at an emergency meeting at the Capitol in Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office. All the senior legislators of both parties are there, House and Senate. And I'm relying here on the account of John Lawrence, who was a senior aide on uh, Pelosi's staff, who actually took contemporaneous notes of what happened and published them in a piece in The Atlantic. So in the previous seven months before this meeting on the Hill, the Fed and the Treasury Department had bailed out one bank, let another bank fail, and nationalized three of the nation's largest companies. And still, the credit market was frozen. The administration was forced now to turn to Congress, and Bernanke said because the Fed had done everything they could do, it was a matter of days before, quote, a major meltdown would occur in the United States and globally. Paulson and Bernanke said they needed $700 billion to stop the credit market collapse. They explained that the collapse of, financial, of the financial sector would kill the rest of the economy. This wasn't just about Wall Street banks. Savings would plummet. Companies and small businesses' ability to borrow would disappear. Treasury Secretary Paulson said, nothing we can say will calm the situation until we come up with a policy that is an overwhelming force. But there were two problems. First, a bailout would look like a big fat bailout to Wall Street, to the same Wall Street criminals who had participated in the behavior that had led to the crisis in the first place. To ease that bailout fear, Democrats suggested some anti-recessionary spending be a part of whatever package they passed and also that they address the overwhelmingly high CEO pay at a lot of these companies. Republicans said the spending proposals wouldn't, wouldn't work. They wouldn't vote for any final package that had those in it. My people are looking for a reason not to support the bill, John Boehner told Nancy Pelosi. And if the bill included Democrats' anti-recessionary wish list of spending, Boehner said in another conversation, my people will run away. So that was one problem. The second problem was speed. Because of the political toxicity, nobody in Congress wanted to get caught bailing out the people who'd caused the problem in the first place. Because of that toxicity, Congress couldn't move fast. We just can't take your word. We need to conduct hearings, said Democratic leader Harry Reid. This is, again, according to John Lawrence's account. It takes two weeks to pass a bill to flush a toilet in the Senate, Reid said. Paulson responded, well, if we don't do this, we are flushing the toilet on the American people. For a lot of people, the $700 billion TARP bailout, and TARP stands for Troubled Asset Relief Program, was not a solution, but was a replication of what was wrong with the economic and political system in America in the first place. Reed reported that his office had received 5,000 calls opposing the TARP plan and only 20 in support. It was a continuation of economic policies that had led to vast income inequality. And it was this underlying feeling about the basic unfairness of the economy that made it impossible for lawmakers to move quickly. The problem, said Fed Chairman Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Paulson, was that every day that they waited was another chance that the U.S. economy might completely melt down. Here, I'm quoting Paulson. In a natural disaster, it's a politically attractive bailout. The disaster hits one group of people. It's a hurricane. It's a superstorm. And the national government is supposed to come in. Everybody wants to see money go there in that case. But this was a politically toxic thing, no matter how you dressed it up. The idea that you were bailing out part of the private sector. Ultimately, though, all the leaders had to get something done. They ultimately believed what Bernanke and Paulson were telling them. John Boehner described it to members this way. 
He said the plan was a crap sandwich, but I'm going to eat it anyway. When he spoke in the well of the House trying to make the case for the first vote for the Troubled Asset Relief Program, he said, Nobody wants to vote for this. Nobody wants to be anywhere around it. I didn't come here to vote for bills like this, but let me tell you, I believe Congress has to act. Well, act it did. Congress took a vote, and it failed. It was, TARP was defeated by a vote of 228 to 205 in the House, which was a rare loss for Speaker Nancy Pelosi who has spent a career knowing when she has the votes and when she doesn't. Nearly 60% of Democrats voted yes. Only 33% of Republicans joined the Democratic leader in voting for this crap sandwich, as Republican leader Boehner had put it. George Bush, the president, who had called all 19 Republican members of his Texas delegation, had persuaded only four to support the bill. At this point, the stock market revolted. It lost nearly 700 points off its opening, ending 778 points lower for the day, a record one-day point loss. By the end of the day, $1.2 trillion in individual retirement accounts, pension funds, and savings was wiped away, about twice the size of the bailout package itself. The VIX index, which is the, what chronicles market volatility, it's sometimes called the fear index, it closed at its highest level in its 28-year history. That negative market reaction to the House vote and softened public opposition to the whole TARP program, and it changed the dynamic a, a little bit. People started to think, well, these, prom these claims that the entire economy might be harmed from this panic uh, started to seem a little bit more real. But at this point, the legislation was out of the House's hands, and it was off to the Senate, where it would get worse, by the view of a lot of people. Democratic leaders in the Senate added energy tax credits and, and a bunch of other special interest goodies in order to get people to vote for the bill. Well, that did the trick. It passed the Senate in a big bipartisan vote. But it meant that the bill, uh, and so it passed the Senate with a big bipartisan vote, sent it back over to the House. The problem was that not only then did the bill not include the stuff that Democrats had wanted when they originally started negotiating this bailout package, but it also contained all this other special interest stuff that helped it pass the Senate, but that Democrats would have found objectionable. However, at this point, now the economy was really on the television screens. People were seeing the negative reaction to the first House vote, so members had to finally vote for this new TARP bailout that came back to them from the Senate. And so the vote passed on this second time, 263 to 171. And in the end, 10 years afterwards, TARP, it turns out to have forestalled the total economic devastation that had been predicted. This is the way John Lawrence writes about it in his piece for The Atlantic. Remarkably, a political system widely castigated as dysfunctional proved capable of passing an enormously expensive, complex, and contentious piece of legislation that prevented a second Great Depression. So why was there a good outcome and why does this matter? Well, at the end of the day, Boehner, the Republican leader, and Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic leader, who fought like cats and dogs, they had a working relationship. They'd both been in the House for quite a long time. They'd worked together on a variety of other measures, even, even ones that hadn't, on which they hadn't reached agreement. But they knew what the other needed. They knew what the other had to deal with with the members of their conferences. They were political veterans in this time when political veterans are not in very good odor. The fact that Boehner and Pelosi had been in the system helped them know how to ultimately get the votes through the system. There were also experts around the president who knew the stakes of what was happening. 
Sure, it was a political crap sandwich, but they knew that in, in presidential decision-making, often the thing, taking no action can be so much worse than the action you do take. There were experts there in markets who knew uh, the disaster that might come if no action was taken anywhere. And finally, you had relationships that had built up between the Treasury Secretary and his boss, but also the Treasury Secretary and the members of Congress, so that they had something that they could work off of. Paulson says that if he hadn't had that experience of working with the president and Pelosi and Schumer and Reed, Schumer being Reed's number two in the Senate, if he hadn't had that, that relation, sets of relationships, he could never have played the role trying to convince them that this was the right move to make. So if you ask any of the big three, Paulson, Bernanke, and Geithner, who were involved in this firefighting effort, what they worry about in the next crisis, they think it's whether the political system will be, will be able to come together to find a solution. The big lesson, says Bernanke, from his look back, is that it's hard in our system to politically go to Congress and get those authorities, and the longer it takes, the more damage that could be done to the economy. Ray Dalio, the founder of the hedge fund Bridgewater Associates, published a, a study of the debt crisis. And his conclusion was that inequality and populism, which have only worsened since the bailout of 2008, will make it more difficult in the next downturn because crisis managers who, in this case with the Great Recession, were able somehow to pull it off, they will lack the political freedom the next time around because the underlying economic inequalities that exist in the system still exist and the frustration is even greater. And since those underlying issues haven't been dealt with, crisis managers in the next crisis won't, be able, won't have as much room to move. There was barely any room to move in 2008. Well, this of course all feels very familiar that the, that the, the nature of inequality in America despite, a, despite a, an economy that's doing well and the sense of populism in the country and the heightened partisanship seems all like real reasons that would keep the next crisis from being solved by the people in the positions of power. And the question this presents for us now then is whether the president or the person who defeats him will do anything to address the things that need to be addressed to handle the next crisis. And what would those things be? And what should we be thinking about in the next presidential election? Well, first is address the income inequality that makes so much of the country feel like the economic field is tilted away from them and into the hands of the people who already have a great deal of the money in America. The more that people feel like the system is tilted against them, the harder it will be to respond to the next crisis. Number two, Hire experts. Experts aren't very, aren't very much in fashion these days, but they're the only people who, in a crisis, know what's going on. Their, ex, their advice may not be perfect, but it's more perfect than people who have no idea how to fly the plane in the first place. A president, then, needs to listen to those advisors, not take everything they say as gospel, but needs to listen to enough of what they say so that they can make a decision in the end that addresses the actual problem. The final point is that relationships b between people in the opposite parties need to exist. <laughs> there is a theory in politics right now that this idea of building relationships is a part of a forgotten age when working across the aisle could actually take place. There's just too much partisanship now. Why bother? That essentially is the operating premise of the Trump presidency. He's done almost no constructive outreach to the Democratic Party. Democrats are tempted to run for the presidency uh, to kind of repeat the Trump 
strategy when they take the Oval Office. I mean, why should they waste time, these Democrats would say, trying to get anything done with a party that will never want to work with them? Well, perhaps one reason could be is that relationships need to exist not just to potentially address some of these underlying issues, but for emergencies, if nothing else. Because even though the economy might seem good now, we know from history that the next emergency is coming. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. And Elizabeth Hinson worked through all the research again this week, as she always does. And thanks to Kelly Vandilla for helping us out in Charlottesville as we recorded this. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.